it is good to see you. Uh, we are in Luke chapter 10. Uh, Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan, one of the most famous parables that Jesus has ever told. Uh, I want to look at this parable in a really interesting light, I hope, and I hope to draw some really powerful truths out of this really familiar story. I want to start, though, by kind of giving you a little bit of a history lesson. So uh, in 1971, there was an advertising agency entitled Needham, Harper, and Steers, who, along with the help of, no less, Barry Manilow, uh, the good old Barry Manilow, created perhaps, you might not know this, the most recognizable uh, commercial slogan and jingle in the history, I think, of commercials. Uh, I'm just going to sing it for you, and you'll know it. Like a good neighbor, stay farm is there. Uh, you might know that. Yeah, I don't even have to sing it. You would just know that from the notes, probably. It's so iconic. Uh, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We know that. It's, it's been around since 1971. I didn't know that Barry Manilow helped write it, but he did. Anyways, um, it's an iconic advertising slogan and uh, song that goes along with it that evokes exactly, I think, what State Farm uh, wants to. We recognize it. It's very brand-centric. You can hear the jingle and you know who it's uh, representing. However, I was reading and looking, and, and in fact, in 2016, uh, the State Farm executives, they sort of they wanted to rebrand their company. Uh, they wanted to not just be associated with what they thought was disaster insurance. So for so long, they had been uh, sort of associated with this idea that they help you when things get bad. You know, a flood, a car wreck, uh, sort of a fire, things like that. They help you when those moments happen. And they don't want to just be associated with those moments of life. They want to be associated uh, with some of the more positive sides of insurance. And they want to promote the more positive sides of their business. You know, um, savings, life insurance, financial planning. If you didn't know those existed in 2016... They they wanted you to. <laughs> and so they sort of changed their slogan. Uh, and one of the executives, uh, she says this, we're not saying we won't be there for people when things go wrong. It's helping them understand we're also there to help their lives go right. And that was their new slogan. Instead of like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Their new slogan was here to help life go right. Uh, for whatever reason, that hasn't really stuck as much. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't think of State Farm in that sort of way. I still think them as the disaster insurance company, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. Um, I think that'll stick forever, uh, that, that sort of branding. And I say all that to say this. I'm okay. I'm okay with my insurance company being associated with disasters. <laughs> that's sort of what you pay the insurance company for, right? You, when things go bad, you know that you can pay them and things will be okay, hopefully afterwards, after the whole claims adjustment thing happens. <laughs> uh, but that's sort of what you buy insurance for, right? You don't buy insurance for things to go right. You buy it for when, hopefully, the things go bad and you can have some support there. I still have to say this, though, I, uh, too. I feel like that's sometimes how we treat our spiritual life with Christ. We treat our relationship with Jesus, I think, sometimes as sort of this disaster insurance policy that we can pull out when things go bad. There's this, uh, uh, th this is often associated with uh, uh, our prayer life, so, so to speak. Prayer life sometimes can be associated with a fire extinguisher that we just pull it out, break in case of emergency. When things are going bad, we break the glass and break out our prayer life because things are bad. <laughs> I think often it's the same with our life with Jesus. He's there. We know he's there. He's involved in our lives, so to speak, just sort of on the sidelines. He's an insurance policy. He's there when things 
go wrongly. But sort of like State Farm, Jesus is not just about being there when disaster strikes. He's there to help life go right. In very, very sound ways, in very real ways, in very more profound ways than an insurance company. He is there to show us what life with God is really like. And again, that's not to say that Jesus isn't there when life is messy and terrible, but he's also there to show you that he is there all the time to help you see what a rightly ordered life looks like. And I say that to say this. All of that is sort of an introduction to, I think, this parable, which I like to entitle this sermon, Like a Good Neighbor, Jesus is There. Because here in this parable, Jesus shows us precisely what a good neighbor looks like and does in a way that I think is very profound. You're familiar with this parable, I'm sure. We're just going to walk through it, walk through this story as is told here in the Gospel of Luke. I think it's the second most famous parable of all the parables that Jesus tells. The first one, I think, being, of course, the parable of the um, prodigal son. This one is probably a very close second. But notice verse 29, because here is the telling of the parable. A lawyer stands up and asks Jesus a question. He says, but he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And this is the inspiration, the inspiration for Jesus to tell his story. And we have it here. Then Jesus answered and said, verse 30, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. You have to know this route from Jerusalem to Jericho was a notoriously dangerous one. It was one that was very famous, very well-traveled, even though it was dangerous. In fact, ancient historian Josephus referred to this route along this way as the bloody way because it was so much filled with vagabonds and thieves and people getting mugged, just like our man in this text, that it was associated with bloodshed. It was a rocky uh, and steep pathway. It was a pathway that descended 32,000 feet for 17 miles. It was very steep, very rough, very rugged terrain, which obviously makes it prime, a prime environment for thieves to come upon you, as this man here in our text uh, succumbs to. He gets ambushed. He gets beaten to a pulp. As it says, he's left half dead, almost incapacitated in the pathway, and two travelers happen upon him. Look at verse 31. Now by chance... A certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, the place where he was ambushed, came and looked and passed by on the other side. A priest and a Levite. Two guys that I think naturally, normally, we would expect to help this poor, hapless guy. This guy who's been beaten to a pulp and left half dead. Two guys that we would expect to because obviously they are religious. They are very devout. They are spiritual. We'd expect them to help this beaten and bruised man. And yet they are the very first ones to not just leave him there, but they pass by on the other side. Evoking this idea that they leave him a wide space. They don't want to get near this guy. They don't want to get near him in his plight. They pass by on the other side of the road. It's like if you're seeing someone that you don't want to talk to on the sidewalk and you go to the other side of the sidewalk because you want to avoid that person. That's sort of the sentiment here. They're avoiding this guy at all costs. 
This guy who's left half dead. They leave him. They leave him in that state. Which to me is fascinating. They leave him in that state. No better. They are. You have to see this. They are no better than the robbers who leave him half dead. Because they leave him in that same exact state. In the same condition as they find him. They leave him. Of course. The priest and the Levite are religious leaders as we know from their positions. And perhaps there was a time and a tradition in which the priests and Levite, they would serve regular terms in the Jerusalem temple. So perhaps they're coming from a long term in the temple. They're tired, they're exhausted, they're going back to their home. They're going back to their hometown after perhaps a couple months of serving. They're tired, they don't want to have to help this man. It's sort of like when you are so exhausted, you don't want to help that guy who's trying to lift his car on the side of the road to change his tire. Because you're tired, you've had a long day at the office. (laughs) I'm not saying you have to, but I'm just saying (laughs) that's sort of what these guys did. They sort of left this guy in the same exact state as they found him. Whatever they were going to that day, whatever errand was on their mind, was more important than being merciful to this hapless, half-dead Jew on the side of the street. It's implied that he's a Jew, by the way. They couldn't be bothered by him. They couldn't be bothered for more than just a mere glance at this guy who's left there in a half-dead state. And their indifference ought to make us, ought to make us a little frustrated. Their unkindness ought to make us a little bit frustrated by their actions. Because we think they should know better. They should know better than to know that mercy, as we were learning in Sunday school this morning, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is the watchword of the Christian. And yet they have no mercy for this man. They have no grace or kindness or compassion on this man. And even then, though, I don't think that's the point that Jesus is making because... If you think about it, think about it uh, put yourself in a priest or a Levite's shoes or sandals, so to speak. They had a lot of rules and rituals and regulations that they had to stick by. And so, in fact, they were actually sticking to the Mosaic law by passing around this guy. In a lot of ways, they were sticking to the law, what was their life's devotion. Because it told them, the law told them, to avoid from touching anything close to death. Anything that was near death itself. You can find a lot of examples of that in like numbers and such. This poor Jewish man who is innocently mugged and left half dead is an unclean thing. To the priest and the Levite, he was unclean. They couldn't uh, go and touch him without themselves becoming unclean as well. Therefore, they're avoiding the unclean thing. And in their minds, they are fulfilling the law. That's important. In their minds, they're fulfilling the law of God here. By avoiding this man, they're Inability to express compassion in their minds was a fulfillment of the law of God. Keep that in the back of your mind. Because I think this is clearly, for me, a vivid reminder of what God or what Jesus elsewhere says in the word of God. That the law is incapable of fulfilling itself. We are incapable of fulfilling the law. Because the only thing that fulfills the law is perfect Love. And here, the priest and the Levite, they don't exercise perfect love. They exercise what they deem is, is, is so, but they leave this wounded traveler 
in his wounds, in his blood, sitting and miring in his own injuries. So notice what happens. Verse 33. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, where the injured traveler was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii. Gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of this man, of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. There's a lot to unpack here in the story of the Good Samaritan as we are familiar with him. But I think the most notable one is, of course, this good-natured man's nationality. He is a Samaritan. If you're familiar with sort of first century culture and society and life, so to speak, you ought to know that the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't like each other very much. (laughs) That's putting it nicely. They hated each other. Their relationship was awful. The, the, The social standing and the social relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans was was racially charged, to say the least. They were so biased against one another. Such is what makes Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well so fascinating, by the way, if you read John 4. But here we have a Samaritan helping where a priest and a Levi do not. The Samaritans were hated because they were sort of half-breed heathens who had intermarried with the Israelites long, long ago. And they brought so many uh, pagan cultural, cultural items and pagan worship along with them that the Jews hated them. This uh, extends all the way from the Babylonian exile to this day in the first century where Jesus is living. They hated one another. Strongly, strongly dislike one another because of their bloodlines, because of their lineage. You can see it. Just noticed, notice the lawyer's response to Jesus. So look at verse 36. So Jesus says, as he sums up his story, So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he, the lawyer said, he who showed mercy on him. You notice that the lawyer can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to mention the servant who actually does have mercy, his nationality. He just says, the guy who showed mercy. (laughs) He can't even bring himself to call him by what Jesus calls him, the good Samaritan, so to speak. And he just refers to him by his actions. I think that's even though just a sidelight of the story. I don't think Jesus is telling the story primarily for, uh, to diffuse sort of the racial hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. I think he's just kind of throwing it in there as extra. An extra bonus. An extra bonus to sort of ruffle the feathers, of, so to speak, of this, of this lawyer. The common application, though, of the story kind of goes something like this. Which neighbor are you? We are told the story and we're made to see uh, the compassion of the Good Samaritan. We're made to see how kind he is to this Jew who has fallen among thieves and left half dead. And then sometimes the application runs, which neighbor are you? Are you a neighbor like the priest? Are you a neighbor like the Levite? Or are you a neighbor like the Good Samaritan? 
I think the problem with that sort of application is the fact that it's very you-focused. What kind of neighbor are you? How neighborly are you being? And I think it kind of moralizes the story, so to speak, almost like an Aesop's fabled story. Here's the story, and here's the moral lesson we can gather from it. Be nice to your neighbors, and then you'll be a good Christian like the good Samaritan. And in some ways, I think that's sort of the point that Jesus is making. I think it's a, a, a subtext of the story that Jesus is telling to be neighborly, to go out of your way, to have compassion. Yes, even compassion on your enemies. It's a point of application, I think, because of the lawyer's immediate question of who is my neighbor. And Jesus is answering that question that we should love our neighbors. Love our neighbors in a way that goes out of the way to be compassionate and sympathetic to their condition. Being a true neighbor here is exactly what this Good Samaritan demonstrates, which is demonstrating a sort of uncommon care and compassion on those we would otherwise have no dealings with. But again, I think this is sort of a subtext of the story, a subplot, if you will. The primary narrative of the story is not for us to find out which neighbor we're like. Actually, I think it's something a little bit different. Because you can't read the story, verses 29 through 37, just in a vacuum, as if that's the only part of the scene. My dad is famous for saying that the most important three words when it comes to reading the Bible are the same three most important words with real estate. You know what the most three important words with real estate are? Location, location, and location. And the same with scripture, which is to say context matters. You can't just take a verse out and, 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 and use it to justify some sort of thing. You have to look at the context in which that verse is established. So again, context is king here, especially with this story. Because what drove Jesus to tell this story? What drove Jesus to talk about neighborly love? We'll go back to verse 25. It's the exchange that happens just prior to this scene in which the lawyer, he stands up. And it says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up. And tested him, tested Jesus, tempted him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You might be familiar with that question. Of course, from uh, Mark, I think it's Mark chapter 10, we have that same question being asked by the rich young ruler. I don't think this is the same man. But he asked that question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? You know the law. You're a lawyer. You're a scribe, one who is supposed to be an expert on these things. You tell me, he says, essentially, you're the expert. What do you read in it? What do you read in the law? Of course, the lawyer answers. So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer answers correctly. Reciting the Old Testament summations of the law that you can find in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. He replies accurately. Jesus affirms this. He says, and he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will have eternal life. That should be enough for this lawyer. 
The, the, the sub, sort of subtextual uh, reading between the lines of this statement by Jesus is that if you want to win eternal life by doing, here is the way that you do it. Love God perfectly, love neighbor perfectly. Do this and you will live. And instead of responding like I probably would, no, I probably wouldn't, that's self-justification. <laughs> instead of responding how he probably should have, how is that possible, Jesus? How is it possible to love God that much or love my neighbor that much? He responds in a way in which he tries to justify himself. Listen to what he says. It says there right there for us in Luke. But he, wanting to justify himself, wanting to have his own goodness be his basis of righteousness, he, wanting to have this question answered in which he can appear right in God's eyes as if he's already fulfilling the law, he says, and who is my neighbor? Show me how I can do it. Give me a list. Give me a person. Give me an object. Give me the ability, the, uh, the wherewithal that I can do this thing. He was trying to defend his religiosity. He was trying to show Jesus that he was a keeper of the law. He can pull it off. He's a scribe. He's a lawyer. He reads the law. He knows what it says. How can I be sure of eternal life by my own doing? And it's precisely this lawyer's self-justifying audacity that sparks Jesus to tell this story about true neighborly love. Which is to say this, that the driving force of the parable of the Good Samaritan is not for us to see ourselves in the Good Samaritan. It's not for us to see ourselves in the one who has this uncommon, perfect neighborly love and compassion. Nor, I think, is the primary focus of the story in order to show us how we can be like the Good Samaritan. I think, actually, the way I read it, it's showing us how unlike the Good Samaritan we actually are. How we don't always practice this perfect neighborly love. A love that fulfills the law. We actually, I think, are to see ourselves as this Jew who's left half dead. That's us. Riddled with sin. Bloodied and battered and bruised and left on the side of the road in our own trespasses and sins. Incapable of saving ourselves. No amount of religion. No amount of Levite proselytizing. No amount of, of priestly duties can save us. Can get us out of the ditch. Our only hope lies in the most unexpected person imaginable. A certain Samaritan. A certain savior. Who comes into the ditch and rescues and saves and heals and delivers bloodied and battered and bruised incapacitated folks out of that ditch. Merely and purely by his grace. You see this is the most amazing part of the story. Jesus is the good Samaritan. 
He's the good Samaritan, the unexpected servant, the unexpected person who shows up in the very mess that we have been made to succumb to. To save us and heal us and restore us. To deliver us out of that rut. To save us and bring us up out of the mud. Out of the miry clay as it says in the Psalms. And plant our feet on the rock of his restoration. Notice. Verses 33 and 34. Because I love these little comments that Luke includes. Where he says that a certain Samaritan as he journeyed. Came where he was, where the injured traveler was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds. The good Samaritan went where the injured traveler was. He doesn't avoid him at all costs like the priest and the Levite. He goes to him. He seeks out this injured traveler. He goes to where the wounded one was. Isn't that just like Jesus? Isn't that just like our God in Christ? Who goes to where the lost sheep are. Who goes to where those who have no hope in and of themselves. He goes to where they are. He goes to them. Those who are lost. Those who are broken. Those who are in need of his delivering. In need of his healing. In need of his bandaging. This is what Jesus does. This is to me one of the most clear pictures of Jesus' mission. Let me read some verses to you. This uh, is wonderful. This comes from Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. These are the very verses, by the way, that Jesus reads in his, one of his first sermons in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. But he reads and he actually takes his text from this very passage. Luke 61 verse 1. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. And the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord God. That he may be glorified. This is what Jesus does. His mission is like the Samaritan's mission. Going to where the injured are. Going to where the poor are. To the brokenhearted, To those who are captive. To those who are bound. To those who mourn. To those who need his healing hand. This is Jesus' mission. He's predisposed to come to sinners. To come to those who are injured. Just like this injured traveler. This is the good news of the story. As I read it. Because I will never measure up to the type of love that's on display here. If you have fully 100% all the time loved your neighbor as you ought. Raise your hand. 
No, we can't. We can't measure up to that type of love. To that type of love, which as the lawyer was asking, fulfills the law and wins eternal life. We are not like the Good Samaritan, but Jesus is. He loves perfectly. We cannot keep the law fully, but Jesus did. And we cannot love as love would have us to love, but Jesus does. Jesus is the solution, as he always is. Sometimes that might appear as if that's too simple, as if that's too matter of fact. (laughs) We know it's all about Jesus. But my friends, let us never get over this wonderful fact that Jesus is the solution to all of the wrongs that we see and witness in our lives. To all of our misgivings, to all of our failures to comprehend the law, to fulfill it, to keep it. For all of our inability to love our neighbors as ourselves, Jesus loves us perfectly. And faith in him, that's what wins eternal life. Faith in the true and better good Samaritan. That's what leads to Eternal life. Jesus is that Samaritan to us. That savior for us. The one that we don't expect. This, the Jewish injured traveler in Jesus' story. He perhaps was just as surprised as those in Jesus' audience that day. To find out that his helper was none other than a Samaritan man. Who didn't just help him. Put a band-aid on his wounds. But brought him to an end and gave him a blank check for whatever he needed in his recovery. This I see as Jesus. Who takes sinners like you and like me. He doesn't just erase our sin. Guess what? He gives us his righteousness. A never-ending account of goodness is put into our account. Imagine waking up one day, and you're going to your bank account to make withdrawal, and it says $100 billion. That would be pretty amazing. (laughs) All those fears about bills and mortgages. And you make a withdrawal because you're really excited. But you want to be modest about it. You withdraw a million. And you go back the next day and it's still the same. It still reads the same amount. To a small degree, that's what Jesus has done for us. But even to a larger degree, it's even better than that. No amount of withdrawals can reduce the amount of righteousness that Jesus has given you. He's given it to you in full. Just like this Samaritan for the innkeeper. Whatever you need, it's at my expense. Same with Jesus. Who takes away our sin and gives us an infinite storehouse of goodness and righteousness and grace. Because that's what type of God he is. That's what type of savior he is. That's what type of healer he is. Who, yes... Like State Farm, meets us in the heat of disaster. 
He's with us in the heat of disaster. He's with us when life is okay. He's there. Not only to be there in our mess, he's there to show us how life can go right by following his name. This is Jesus, the good neighbor who's always there. Let us pray.